Welcome to another Western Ag Life Voices podcast, where we celebrate the people that make up the rich fabric of the Western lifestyle. Please do us a favor and thank the sponsors, because without them, we couldn't bring you these free podcasts. Howdy. Welcome to the Western Ag Life Media Podcast. My name is Dean Fish, and I'm with your co-host, Paul Ramirez, and we're here bringing you the stories of the people and characters of the West that kind of make up our Western heritage, and we're pleased today to have Tina Siemens with the West Texas Living Heritage Museum. Welcome to our podcast, Tina. Thank you so much. It is truly an honor to be on with y'all. I appreciate the time and opportunity. Well, we're excited to talk to you today. So tell us a little bit about your background, kind of where you came from, where you grew up, and then how you got to the to the Living Heritage Museum there. Well, it's been an amazing journey. I was nine when my parents immigrated to uh, West Texas in 1977, and that kind of gives my age, but that's okay. I, I was, my family was the seventh Mennonite family that immigrated from Chihuahua, Mexico. And so I was uh, nine, like I said, and did not speak a word in English. It was all German only. And it was a tough, tough start, but determination and uh, perseverance uh, has brought us through many ups and downs. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity to be uh, an American citizen. And I say I love my heritage and that's why I've opened up the museum but but to have the opportunity to become a U.S. citizen which was uh, a story in itself uh, is truly uh, if it wasn't for God bringing us to this point uh, a lot of people would have given up but uh, our faith and our perseverance uh, kept us on the journey and and uh, I'm just so grateful for for the opportunity to be on and then to have opportunities like this to speak about it uh, brings true joy. Very cool. So where did you immigrate to, to West Texas? What part of West Texas did you immigrate to when you were not? I'm in Seminole. Uh, I'm in West Texas, a small town called Seminole, Texas, and it was uh, where the Comanche Nation roamed before, the, in their words, the pale face came. But uh, it was 1875 when the, when the 10th Calvary hired the Black Seminoles uh, from the state of Florida for their scouting abilities. And they came to the area where Seminole is located now. In fact, the Seminole draw is my backyard. And so we, uh, we got our start here by the 10th Calvary finding or discovering 50 shallow water wells that the Comanche Nation had dug in the draw. Uh, south of uh, present-day Seminole, and that is how we got our name. Uh, the clerk, the captain said to the clerk of the 10th Calvary, let's name these wells the Seminole Wells in honor of the Black Seminoles, the Buffalo Soldiers, and so that's where we got our name, and it means set apart, and so the Mennonites have always been set apart, and we, uh, we my uh, grandparents, and great-grandparents, they immigrated to Mexico from Canada, and then from Canada, I mean, from Mexico, then to Seminole, Texas, where a group of about 500 uh, in that initial group of immigrants, and we, uh, 
it became an international story uh, until uh, our then the congressman, uh, George Mahon, picked up on the story with our local mayor being very involved trying to help us get the immigration started. And so then uh, Mr. Mahon went to Washington and pleaded our case, and a special bill was written in the House and uh, Congress, and it passed both House of Congress in the second year where it was introduced to the floor, and then President Jimmy Carter signed it into law. And that gave that initial group of 500 the uh, opportunity to become U.S. citizens. So the INS came to Seminoles to swear in us as citizens. And so that, uh, that was October 31st, 1986. So how, that, that was an amazing journey. Oh, how cool is that? That I, yeah. um, my, my mom became a U.S. citizen and they had a little um, ceremony. And that was an incredibly touching and powerful ceremony to think about. You know, yeah. something that I take as an American, you know, born an American citizen, I take that for granted. And um, yeah. to yeah. realize how powerful that is, that's a pretty... Pretty cool thought. And so, Tina, yeah. um, what precipitated this all uh, large conglomerate of people moving uh, to the United States? It was, uh, things were really difficult. The Mennonites have had a history of uh, immigration. Uh, so back in 1536, it started in Netherlands. And the Mennonites were always known for their ability to farm and to uh, to do raise cattle and to do the hands-on farming. And so there was a, a Catholic priest by the name of Menno Simon, and he left the Catholic Church in 1536, and his followers, his little group that he then shepherded, became known as the Mennonites from his name, Menno Simon. Mm. And so at the same time in Germany, there was uh, uh, Martin Luther, who translated the Bible. So his little group became known as the Lutherans. And then there was John Calvin that became, uh, he led a, led a small group and that became the Calvinist movement. And then in Switzerland, uh, during the same Reformation time, there was a guy by the name of Jakob Ottoman. And that became the Amish group, uh, deprived from his name Ottoman. And so they kind of took on their own identity and that became the, the movement. And so Netherlands, Menno Simon, uh, after they, the king uh, persecuted all the Christians a lot for their faith, King Augustus from what is now uh, Poland uh, invited the Mennonites to come because for, of their, mainly for their ability to do farm and eggs. And then um, uh, in return, he promised them religious freedom. And so when he passed, his predecessor didn't, uh, honor the privilege that was given by the king, King Augustus. So then Catherine the Great, from where now Ukraine is uh, situated, she heard about the plight of the Mennonites. And so she needed farmers to farm all the uh, thousands of acres that she was, uh, had gained through different wars. And so then she invited the Mennonites to come to, it was South Russia at the point, at the time, but then it became what is now Ukraine. So my ancestors lived there for uh, about 150 years. And then after she passed, then, then those privileges were taken away again. And then they immigrated to Canada and also here to the U.S. And the group that went to Canada, which was primarily my immediate family, 
they then eventually moved in 1922 to old Mexico. But where my museum is going to connect is the group that went from Ukraine to Kansas. And there was a young, young boy, he was 14 at the time, and uh, he immigrated with his parents from Ukraine to Kansas, uh, and that was 1877, so exactly a, 100 years prior to my immigration. And he then became the first missionary to present-day Oklahoma Comanche group and got permission from Chief Quanta Parker to build what he called them the Jesus House. And so that's how that church is still in existence in Indiahoma today. And this weekend, they are, uh, many of the great-grandchildren of Chief Quanta Parker uh, are going to come down south to uh, West Texas and meet at the Horsehead Crossing between Monahans and uh, Port Stockton. So just lots of amazing connections. And, and now that I've started writing books, uh, I'm, I'm connecting dots and... Uh, it's just such an amazing life to live, a uh, dream come true to incorporate history and agriculture and, and all, of, all of the different components that my life has uh, been blessed with. So tell us a little bit about, about, about some of those books. What have you, what have you authored and, and, um, and give, so, our, yeah, give our listeners a little bit of background there. Yeah, yeah, my first book that I authored was uh, I launched, in 2019 and um, so that's titled Seminole Some People Never Give Up and that kind of tells just uh, uh, more of what I just talked about our migration story and then how Seminole West Texas came to be so that uh, that is uh, it started out with me just wanting an account for my grandchildren because I had traveled the world like every place that Mennonites had been to in order to gather the information and to gather the correct information. And that was a 20-year process for me to uh, gather all of that. And uh, so I wanted, my aim was just to have a written account and a, and a three bind, a ring binder for my grandchildren to have their history. And by the time I, I got through writing, it it started to look more and more like a manuscript and and then I was encouraged to to actually publish it and and it has done well it uh, has sold literally around the globe and so it's uh, continuing to do well and then I started writing my second book but then COVID hit and I really couldn't travel and so then I did my second book uh, which is titled The Little Sandals That Could so that's more of a children's version of what my Seminole Some People Never Give Up is, uh, kind of the immigration story through me as a nine-year-old uh, immigrating to a new land with learning the language, learning the culture, and, and just uh, how we, we were able to maneuver through that. So those are two published books that I have on the market now. Again, the first one was Seminole Some People Never Give Up, and the second one is The Little Sandals That Could. A Child's Journey to a New Country. And where, and, uh, where would our listeners find those, or where, where could they purchase those? They are both on Amazon, in audio version, as well as Kindle, and then, of course, the, the paperback. And if any of the listeners want a signed copy, they can uh, email me, and I'd be honored to, to ship them a signed copy. Oh, very cool. 
So you've, you started the West Texas Living Heritage Museum, is that correct? That's correct. That was this past June. And uh, with the, again, there's, there's all sorts of connections with the different cultures, but uh, I have always loved antiques. I love the history that each antique piece uh, carries with it. And uh, so I, when I started gathering the, the stories for Seminole, some people never give up, I would travel and I'd go to museums and go to, go to the local stores. And of course, I'd, I'd always try to bring back something that, that would be associated with that story and that location. So I had gathered for about 20 years again, uh, just different things of, of, uh, antiques that interest me, but more, not so much the antiques itself, but the stories that, that go along with, with each piece. So I, had prayed for a building for many years and it just did not seem to, to be the right timing. And so this past, uh, last year, the end of the year, I thought, well, I pray that the 2023 will be the year where I, I find that building. And that building was right in front of my eyes. We had just moved to the farm, built a new home and the place that we moved out of was about 6,000 square feet. And it was a barn dominion. And so I talked to my husband and he said, go for it. It's empty. It's not being used. Uh, start there and we'll see where it goes. So that's when I got into full gear and just started bringing all my storage boxes and containers of, of things that I'd uh, gathered over the years and started displaying those. And then uh, uh, while I was in the process of that, I had found some books online and that uh, I knew about the Comanche history here in our area, but they then, I found a book that my third cousin three times removed that moved from Ukraine to Kansas was the first missionary to the Comanche. So I, I went on another uh, hunt and, uh, and found amazing connections. So just about two weeks ago, I was given the certificate of my, Comanche name uh, by by the great grandchildren of Quanah Parker. So they they came here for the grand opening of the West Texas Living Heritage Museum, and uh, so it's it's just been an amazing uh, connecting all these different stories and how they've they've been here, they've lived it, and now I was able to plug in my story and and it just becomes a bigger story, and it's all about people's lives and that's. Uh, that's the beauty of of knowing history that's that's cool when you when when we think of museums we think a lot of times about you know them being a place that's preserving history but one of the things i think that makes the west texas living heritage museum kind of unique is is that also in your in your mission you have to educate and inspire can you tell us a little bit about some of the classes or some of the educational outreach kind of things that that you're doing or planning to do Yes, I have done a lot of canning classes. So going back to what our, our forefathers, our grandparents, great-grandparents did uh, in the agriculture, they, they were not used to having a uh, United or a, a HCB or any, any grocery store. So what they had, they had to harvest on their own farms and then, and then preserve. And so I, my aim is to teach that to the younger generation so that if we had a small taste of the, 
our grocery stores not being quite as stocked uh, as before COVID. So I've, I've always enjoyed canning. I've witnessed both my grandma's canning a lot and my, my mom and, and I, and even my dad uh, loves to can. So I've always been exposed to that and I wanted to have the, the next generation do that. So I've, I've put on several different canning classes and uh, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before we had our first homesteading uh, where we invited different instructors. So we had 20 different classes that were uh, being taught throughout the weekend. It was a, a three day week, uh, a three day affair. And we did how to raise uh, pigs for butchering, how to uh, do beehives, uh, how to raise a healthy milking cow, uh, do, doing milking goats and soap making and uh, canning. Uh, we had how to do a, a garden in West Texas because we're in the dry desert. So how, how to successfully do gardens and composting. So we had 20 different classes, butchering. So we have a local butchering shop and they brought to the museum a live head of cattle, uh, a steer a, about a year old, and a pig, uh, some chickens, a duck, and, and a turkey. And they butchered it right in front of the audience. Like they brought it there live, killed it right there on spot, and then showed us the whole process of how to, uh, how to preserve and how to get the different cuts from each uh, uh, slaughtered animals. So that, that was really, really cool to see the, the young people, like my grandkids were all taken out of school to, to where they had the opportunity to just sit and watch. And, and I think that will, that was such a wonderful, uh, start of, of what we are going to just build on for, at the West Texas uh, Museum. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of connect back to those basics. You know, my generation, we had in in our in our post sec in our secondary education, we had a home ec class, and we had a vocational uh-huh. type classes like auto mechanics and woodworking and some of those skills that right. that I think that that we've lost. So I I salute you for the work that you're doing to try to bring some of that back to to our young people and to for for people to understand where food comes from, and you know, it just doesn't come from the grocery store. It comes from from no. somewhere, someone had to, you know, put labor into that and and make that happen. Yeah, and exactly. So, and Tina, um, I think you know, at one point in time, there was a no, novel component to to what you're doing, um, but I think since COVID, now you know, this has become sustainable, and I think there's people that are thinking along those lines, um, probably more than ever. Is that right? Absolutely, because the, the canning jars during COVID, people were really getting into it, so. Uh, the the stock of canning jars went up 600%. And that kind of tells you that people are, that was an eye opener for people that maybe we do need to go in our basement and uh, get out those old canners that grandma uh, stored in the root cellar or, or just learning. So it's for the Mennonites that has always been a way of living, but for us to be able to pass that on to the younger generation is just, um, a very vital part of, uh, I think, where we're heading in the future. Yeah, and that, you know, and that and that also kind of leads into the discussion about food waste, right? You know, we are mm. extremely productive and efficient in agriculture, and um, 
you know, we think about having to feed our population and the world population, but, you know, a big, big problem of that or part of that is, is preserving food and, and preventing food waste. And so canning can be one of those solutions. Well, that's, that's what I always said. Like my, my grandparents would can, uh, butcher and can, and the only thing that they didn't use from a, from a butchered animal was the oink or the, the <laughs> blah because everything else was was used for something the lard was used to make the soaps and and the the sauce the, the casings we didn't have a way of of purchasing uh, synthetic casings so we i remember as a young girl cleaning out the, the small intestines for the casings for the the sausage making so so those things are all so foreign to the current generation that that you would have been able to do all of that, and so I think it's uh, it's very timely uh, to recreate some of those uh, those things. And for most people, have heard of canning pickles and and fruits and different jams, but to can meat uh, is a very foreign thing. Uh, if they see me a ground brown up a whole skillet full of ground beef and put it in a mason jar and, and can it as well as a whole roast and I can my chicken uh, and that way it, it has a 20 to 25 year shelf life without any preservatives uh, just because it's been high pressure canned and so it's so much healthier for you and so all of the all of these things are are to be taken like this morning me and a friend of mine were uh, making applesauce so as soon as I'm done with the interview I'll continue making applesauce and so it's, it's just that making it a lifestyle uh, is very doable and it's not rocket science uh, grandma and grandpa they didn't have the education that that even we do have the pr- uh, privilege of having and yet they knew how to how to survive and um, and I think that's that's my goal as the uh, when I chose the name uh, West Texas Living Heritage Museum, I wanted the word living in there because that's exactly what I want to teach is it's not just something of the past. It's something that we can do today. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, Tina, are you also curating um, items from other people they're bringing to you now? And We uh, are. Could we talk about that? What are you looking for? You know, because there's a good chance um, some of our listeners are listening and uh, they may want to um, make a contribution um, to your museum. Tell us they, a little bit what that would look positive, like. It's, thank you. I uh, really appreciate that. It is people are donating items uh, and uh, I am definitely looking to fundraise and, and to build a bigger place because my goal my long-term dream is to get a 20 acre plot and have actual gardens and bee beekeeping and uh, and just to where we can have have that all in one spot to go from farm to table almost and uh, and not just with having these rooms set up with antiques which is definitely what i wanted and have uh, some but to be able to have a kitchen and to, to be able to teach canning classes and, and so forth. That is definitely my dream. And uh, it is, I'm not a 501c3, but I'm a nonprofit. And so that, uh, that's definitely a possibility and, and uh, it'd be greatly appreciated. 
Um, so tell us, like, um, just, you know, at, uh, curiosity, you know, um, we, you and I had a discussion about how I found you on social media. And yeah. um, I was, you know, for sure, you know, we're, we're a promoter of the Western lifestyle. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what a great um, story and, and how um, wonderful what you're doing there is to be commended for sure, you know, uh, for those of us involved in the Western lifestyle. But tell us just like a neat story um, about maybe how you've uh, acquired something unique. Um, like for the museum part? You yeah, mean? like a contribution yeah. to the museum. I would say... Artifact. Like, uh, yeah, I've got an artifact, our lo uh, local mayor, current mayor, uh, gifted uh, or loaned into on uh, uh, a large petrified snail, uh, like a tri... tri oh, man. Uh, what is that called again? Where... where that's okay. I think most people understand. Mammal, large stale. Which, so it's a, it's a <laughs> large petrified stone, sure. a stone that, that's in the form of a snail. And uh, so that, that is really, really unique. And then I have uh, the great grandsons uh, of Chief Kwana Parker's, uh, the late Ron Parker. He passed away sadly last uh, December, very quickly of uh, cancer. And so I have his headdress uh, in, uh, in the museum. And then I have a 14-foot uh, teepee, actual teepee uh, set up, and a, a three-times great-grandson of Chief Quanah Parker painted that for me. So I've got, uh, I don't know if you've seen the video, the movie 1883, uh, all of the bows and arrows were made by the, the son-in-law of the, who married a great great granddaughter of Chief Quanah Parker, so he made all those bows and arrows. So I've got two of his bows and arrows uh, in the in the museum, which I'm really really proud of. And uh, and then some local people have donated uh, pressure canners that their grandma had in the basement and mason jars with with the Liberty Bell. Like you don't find those type of mason jars. So I I just have a collection of uh, a large, large group of artifacts that that pertain to the lifestyle, uh, and I call the non-German uh, population the Englander world. Uh, so the English people, and then so I, what the Mennonites would all often do is they couldn't afford to buy a bot, let's say a, uh, a cream separator or a butter churn. And so I will have what the Mennonites made out of whatever material they had at the house, imitating what, what could have been bought. And so I, I've got the, the factory made butter churn and butter forms. And then I have what my ancestors made. So I've got a number of those type of things where, where you can see uh, when, when people walk into the rooms, they say, Oh, that's what I remember. But then another person can come right beside, never seen one of these items, but is very familiar with, with the homemade items. So it's, it's just fun to stand and just hear people. Uh, it takes them back immediately to their childhood or to their, to their uh, sometime in their past. So it's, it's really, really a, a beautiful thing. And people are, are sending me or asking me almost on a daily basis, 
can you use one uh, one of these items? I have my great grandma's and I would like to loan it into the museum. So that that's definitely happening, which I'm very appreciative of. Yep, pretty neat. So we're we're about to wrap this up, but I wanted to ask if you would tell our listeners um, you know, how they can come see you, how they can get involved. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about um, what what the West Texas Living Heritage Museum offers. Well, I, or where would they we find more per- information? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, on our website at West Texas Living Heritage Museum, and uh, the website would be wtlhm.com. And if they are in the area, currently I'm only open three days a week, but uh, I'm definitely open to uh, doing special school school uh, groups. There's a, homeschooling is another big thing that's trending right now, but if uh, a school system or a homeschool group wants to make the trip, uh, we can uh, arrange to where we could do a canning class or just uh, come tour the museum. And uh, so that the address is 511 County Road 103, in Seminole, Texas, and then uh, the website is wtlhm.com. So if they wanted to uh, get in touch with me and make uh, an arrangement outside of my hours, then I would be more than happy to, to make that happen. Well, that's wonderful, Tina. I'll encourage all of our listeners, if you're anywhere near Seminole, Texas, go see Tina, go see the West Texas Living Heritage Museum, Check them out on the website, see how you can get involved. On behalf of Western Ag Life Media, my name is Dean Fish. I've been with Paul. Thanks again to Tina Siemens with the West Texas Living Heritage Museum. Appreciate you. We'll see you on the next podcast.